0: Hey, have you heard about our all new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer Brian Beatty here alongside your host, my friend Michael John Cusick.
0: Hello, Brian.
1: Hello, Michael. Still looking good.
0: Yeah, we are still in Colorado, face to face. The sun is going down as we look out toward the west at Any Mini Sushi and beyond.
1: And Eenie Meenie Sushi was closed today. I'm, I'm sad. I Can came all this way, all this way from Cincinnati. You promised me Eenie Meenie Sushi, and then I have to wait.
0: We'll have to do it tomorrow.
1: The waiting is the hardest part. But let's jump in. 165 to 170 episodes uh, ranging from addictions, uh, trauma, uh, music, uh, all kinds of stuff. So why do you keep doing it?
0: Wow. Why do I keep doing it? Um, two reasons. Number one, uh, I, there's a lot of things I'm not good at intellectually. I have, I'm have i not being falsely humble. I, I have a lot of limitations. I have a learning disability. Uh, I can't do numbers. Uh, but I have a very, very high processing speed, and it's very hard to shut my mind off. And so I process things verbally. And when I sit with someone and turn on a microphone, it's part of how I think and it's part of how I express. Um, I've written a bunch of stuff, but I don't quote write. I have a really hard time getting things from my head to my hands and out on paper or on a computer. So I talk. And sometimes when I talk, I get clarification about things. Um, and so as I've been counseling for years, I've said some things that have been helpful to people, and they've said, you should develop that. And as I've taught uh, graduate counseling students and seminary students, I've thought some things and talked about some things that people have said are helpful. And um, I was a broadcasting major for about six months with uh, my many different college majors before I graduated with social studies. And I've always had a love of Radio and microphones and doing different voices. And so when podcasting in its very, very, very early days started, um, even before Apple had podcasts, I started recording interviews with people. And then years ago in the Mars Hill Review, I interviewed a bunch of people and I did written interviews. So for me, it's just really fun to sit down and talk with people who have impacted me, whose books, whose thinking, whose ministry has touched me. And, you know, for the last four and a half years, or for the last number of years that the podcast has been going, we've talked about how the interviews have been great. But through my own writing and speaking, uh, there's my own content that's forming, and there's some thoughts that are crystallizing, and I've got uh, a new book coming forth that I'm working on, and um, it's just more and more important for me. To be able to articulate ideas about God for who God really is, how good the gospel really is, and how our brokenness is not a barrier, but a bridge to God. And I think that's the thing uh, that I've experienced most deeply and that I'm the most passionate about. When people think that life is over, when they think that it's the end, when they think they've screwed up, failed, um just not been able to get there that 's the beginning of God uh, showing up so long answer, Wow, we could do a whole podcast mm-hmm. on that, but um my passion is to uh, help people create connections with their own heart, with the hearts of others, and ultimately with God.
1: Mm. I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the opportunity to work alongside you and this Format for me, it's a very accessible medium, you know, to connect. Um, and here we are, you know, in your office in Denver with um, simple equipment, um, inexpensive gear, but yet uh, able to send out a message to the world in a moment's notice and so I'm grateful for this opportunity. And and for those of you who are listening today, we'd love to hear from you. Head on over to the Apple Podcast Reviews and just leave us a note. Let us know you're out there. Let us know where you're from and um, what has inspired you and uh, what maybe would be something that you'd like uh, for Michael to talk about in the future. So if you've Followed us the last couple episodes, uh, we're currently in episode number five, as we've been looking at uh, Michael's book, Surfing for God. And today's uh, episode, we're going to be dialing in uh, the chapter about shame and core beliefs. And you write that one of the major barriers to overcoming struggles with porn is shame. Now, this is confusing to some people, so why not jump into this uh, whole idea of shame? You
0: bet, um, and I'll start with a true story. Uh, shortly after Surfing for God came out, I was speaking at a church, and this was local in Denver, and it was a men's event. And about halfway through the three-hour uh, experience, a man showed up uh, who had not been there at the beginning. And it was a group of about 20 guys, and this was a men's group dedicated to overcoming sexual struggles. This guy comes in, and he's wearing— uh, just what I could easily tell was about a $1,500 suit and $500 pair of shoes and probably a Rolex watch or something like that. Very successful, professional, and really about communicating, hey, I'm a sharp guy. And um, he came in halfway through not only the entire session, but one of the lectures, and I was talking about shame at that point. And after about five minutes of settling in – He raises his hand and he says, uh, I have a question. And I wasn't really answering questions at that time, but small enough group. I said, "Okay, great. He said, if I'm hearing you correctly, that I shouldn't believe the lies of shame. And if I don't shame myself, then I'll go do anything I absolutely positively want to do. And this man had been deeply involved in sexual addiction and multiple affairs and hiring prostitutes. And I later found out he had spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on his addiction, and he was in danger of losing his marriage. And what his point was is that shame is what keeps me from going over the cliff and acting out even more. And are you telling me that I should give that up? So at the start, I just want to say, Do you use shame as a way of managing your sin? Let's talk about uh, this topic, and Brian, you've got some questions that you're going to ask along the way, but I think it's important to start with talking about uh, the difference between shame and guilt so that people can understand why this guy was kind of pushing back against Mm. what I was saying.
1: Yeah, in any conversations that I've had, shame and guilt get confused or used interchangeably. So I think it's important as we get uh, started today to understand uh, the difference and have some clarity between shame and guilt.
0: Yeah, so I will often say it this way, and it's often spoken of, that guilt – is something that we have done wrong. And shame is more of a sense and a statement that I am wrong. Guilt says, I have done something bad. And shame says, I am bad. So shame is a statement about personal worth, value. It's a statement that basically says, I am flawed. I don't measure up. I am inadequate. It's an evaluation of oneself when we are exposed or seen by the eyes of another that we are deficient, and it's something that's deep, deep inside of us. Guilt is something that um, when I was a young Christian and I was struggling with uh, compulsive masturbation and looking at pornography, and then later as I started to act out sexually, I would go to First John nine again and again and again, and no exaggeration, 5,000 times. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right there in First John. I had memorized that as a young believer. And so I would engage in sexual sin, and I would go and confess And I would confess, and I would confess, and I would try to work up some steam of remorse and letting God know how sorry I was, and I would clench my teeth, and I would squeeze my hands together in prayer, and it was sincere, and it was real. And afterwards, for hours or days or weeks sometimes, I would feel this gnawing feeling inside, like, why have I confessed and I still don't feel forgiven. I still feel guilty. Well, the answer is, I didn't understand the difference between shame and guilt. Here's the big point that I would want uh, a person to take away. Shame is not from God. Shame is not from the Father of Jesus, and the Father of Jesus, which is what the New Testament says God looks like, does not shame us. When Jesus came against people who were sexual sinners. The woman caught in adultery in Luke chapter 8, where men are standing around saying the law tells us to stone her to death. Jesus says, you without sin cast the first stone. And so starting with the older ones, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And according to that Old Testament law, they could have been stoned. She could have been stoned. But Jesus comes along, and there's this new way of living. He's reorienting us to a new way of living. That's off this Bonhoeffer quote that I've mentioned in previous podcasts on Surfing for God. Bonhoeffer said that the pursuit of purity is not about suppressing lust, but about reorienting your life to a larger goal. And people often say, well, what does that mean to reorient my life to a larger goal? And one of the things that it means is coming to see how we have internalized shame-based beliefs, how we have taken statements that have been put on us, we've taken statements that we have told, we've taken experiences that we've had where we have been seen in a way that's less than, that is deficient. The person that I was working with, one of my very, very, very first uh, counseling clients when I was first starting out was a man who had been a childhood stutterer, and as an adult, he no longer stuttered, and he became very, very successful, but he still had great shame over that little boy who was made fun of, who was laughed at, who felt stupid, even though he had gone on with with his agile mind to become very, very successful. We internalize the words of others, and we internalize these experiences, and we develop core beliefs. And it's those core beliefs that really do become uh, fuel for the addictive cycle.
1: So as Christians, is shame something we should be feeling?
0: That's a great question, uh, because so often folks will say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that shame is the sense that I'm deficient, that I'm unworthy, that I'm unlovable. Isn't that true? I mean, aren't I lovable and worthy only because of Jesus? And I want to take a deep breath as I say this, because um, the answer is no. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says that we are unworthy or unlovable. The whole idea of sin is about autonomy and independence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency. The only way that the Scriptures speaks of unworthy is that we're unworthy to earn God's love. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace through faith, not by own works, lest we should boast. So if I met Julianne, uh, we're going to celebrate our 30th anniversary coming up in June. And if when I met her here in Colorado, she lived in another part of the country, I lived in Ohio, and I said, um, Julianne, uh, I want you to know that I'm going to graduate school, and I'm going to get a 4.0, and because I'm such a good student, I want you to marry me. She'd look at me like I was ridiculous. And then I thought, well, um, Julianne, I have a guaranteed salary starting out after graduate school with this 4.0 of $1 million a year. So I'd like you to marry me. That might get a little bit more of her attention, but my wife is still going to roll her eyes at that. And if I said, um, let me take off my shirt and show you my washboard abs, <laughs> and obviously I would have had to have plastic surgery, and you see where I'm going with this. Let me show you my profile and my strong jaw, and I have white, healthy teeth, and we will make great children together. And after all, my genes are, you know, She's not going to go, okay. See, the whole idea of unworthiness is that we can't earn love, because love, by definition, can only be bestowed freely. So in the gospel context, it's that we are unworthy to bring anything to God that makes him love us. It's who we are, and it's who he is. That he loves us. And so that's one of the ways where this gets all confused. But I want to read two scriptures, Brian. And one of them is perhaps, you know, second to John 3.16 um This may be one of the more popular scriptures, and it's in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. And I was taught this scripture about how to lead someone to Jesus. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, the next verse, because we often don't pay attention to the next verse. The next verse says, here's how you get saved, and boom. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. The effect of the gospel, the effect of declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the effect of believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and being saved, is that we would no longer live with shame or be put to shame. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the message, Eugene Peterson translated that verse as, The low-lying black cloud of condemnation has been lifted. And that is certainly about guilt, but it's also that any shame that we would feel, it doesn't have to be there. Because God is not looking at us as if we are inadequate. Now, let me flip the coin over. There is someone who is looking at us saying, you are unworthy, you are unforgivable, you are inadequate, you are not beloved, and that is the evil one. And in Revelation 12, we have an accuser. And the accuser never says, you know what? You're really good-looking, and you have a tender, compassionate heart. The evil one is always saying, you are so dirty. You are so bad. You don't have a good heart. So, in answer to your question, no, shame is not something that God wants us to feel. In fact, Andy Comiskey, in a book he wrote many years ago, um, said something about shame that this quote was so powerful, I included it in Surfing for God. He said that shame is like a raincoat over the soul that repels the living water of Jesus that would establish us as his beloved. Mm-hmm. And so not only does not God not want us to to embrace shame and to believe shame, but it's the very thing that keeps us from his love.
1: Hmm. So good. You're listening to Restoring the Soul. I'm Brian Beatty, along with Michael John Cusick, and we're taking a look. uh, We're in uh, the fifth uh, episode, uh, diving deeper into his book, Surfing for God. And we're going to take a quick break. And Michael, um, think about this now. I'm going to ask you how we can overcome uh, shame and really appreciate the conversation that we're having today. We'll be right back with more of restoring the soul with Michael John Cusick.
0: You already know we live in a pornified world. But most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle.
1: Welcome back to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, and we are in episode number five talking about uh, Michael's book, Surfing for God. And today uh, the topic is Shame and Core Beliefs. Michael, how do we overcome shame?
0: Uh, you overcome it, you just stop it, you just memorize a scripture verse, and that's simple. It's that simple. Okay. That's so what that I did.
1: concludes, uh, this episode of restoring assault. Man, that's brilliant.
0: I don't know why I'm being sarcastic, but I, but I think it's because, um, number one, the shame experience has been so deep inside of me. And early on in my healing journey out of sexual addiction, I gained some real traction because if you were to ask me, when did I become a Christian? I would say either 1980, When I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus as my Savior, which I did like six times back to back, or 14 years later when my life fell apart, and I would say the difference is in 1994, I came to know the love of God for the first time. And so this is a hopeful thing, and hopefully not a discouraging thing, but the journey from shame to living as a beloved son has been a long one. And it has involved a lot of different levels of healing of trauma and identifying lies and breaking agreements. And there are times where I can still be triggered and shame comes up. Uh, Two weeks ago, and you and I talked about this, I was doing a podcast with somebody uh, who is a a pretty big name in the world today and uh, written a lot of books. And I really respect this person and the Zoom technology didn't work. And it wasn't the first, but the second time uh, for this person who is very gracious to schedule time and be available for me, and I screwed up. And the second time I got flooded with, my face became red and I felt anxious on the inside and my heart started racing and I literally couldn't concentrate. It was like I, I was suddenly in a fog and it was this flooding of shame that was there. And I was really surprised by that because I hadn't had an experience like that in a long time. But it was my perception that in the eyes of the other, I screwed up. I was less than, that I was incompetent, that I wasn't professional, that I had nothing to say, that if I really, you know, cared that this wouldn't have happened. And it derailed me for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. And then when I went home later that night and, you know, my wife said, hey, how you doing? I was like... I had a rough afternoon. I really had to battle against some stuff. And so just know that that's not a regular part of my life, but that dynamic used to be below the surface all the time, and I was getting triggered without even knowing it, that those kinds of things were happening.
1: Hmm. So you started down a path to help us overcome shame. Bring us back.
0: Yeah, thank you. I can so easily get off the rails, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that we're sitting in the same room as you flew in. Um, how do we overcome shame? The first thing is we have to realize the effect of shame. It's more than just a thought. It's more than just this feeling that comes over us. And, and the feeling of shame, the physiological experience, is as bad and unpleasant and as intolerable an experience as anything else we can have. Shame is always very, very embodied. It's always physical. And so we have to realize that shame always creates distance. Back in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, when their eyes were opened, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did was they covered themselves with fig leaves. I will not let you see me. I will not let you know me, because now that I know good and evil, and I wasn't supposed to know evil, um, now what you see will not be good. It will be less than, and so I've got to hide that. So shame always creates distance, because our natural reaction to shame is to hide and to not trust. And so the first antidote to shame is to, as we realize how it happens and what our shame triggers are, is to humble ourselves. And to humble ourselves is not to cover ourselves with fig leaves, or to be a poser, or an imposter. I have story after story after story, as, as I'm sure all of our listeners do, of ways that I have lied, faked, posed in order to overcome shame. And humility says, I'm going to trust you with me. Humility with God is, God, I'm going to trust you with who I actually am and who I really am. And so when we feel shame, it's an opportunity to be known. It's an opportunity to be loved. It's an opportunity to be vulnerable. Now, many of us, our wounds and our life stories are such where when we've been vulnerable, we've been shamed and we've been crushed. And when we've entrusted our our heart and ourself to another, they have not Honored that or handled us well. And so this can be a really, really scary thing. And for many people, it's really difficult to get beyond that initial sense of I'm inadequate. I've sat in counseling sessions before I was doing intensives for months and months and even years with people who, if you go after the shame directly, like, well, you're not a bad person and you are a good speaker and you are a good parent that it never gets to the core because this is something very, very primal. There are four core beliefs as um, this plays out. And I write about these in my book uh, that that really play out for all addiction. But I believe that they're for all humans. And the, the first core belief is in some sense or variation. We believe that we're bad or unworthy people that we simply don't measure up. That we're not good enough. And again, if you're thinking, well, that's true, that's what Scripture says, that's not what I'm talking about, because when Scripture says anything like that, it's saying that in reference to that we can't use those things to earn love. God made us in His image, and there is an inherent dignity upon us. I want to read a passage from Psalm chapter 3, just as I read the passage from Romans 10, Psalm 3. This is a psalm when David fled from his son Absalom. And in verse 3, he says, You are a shield around me, Lord. You bestow glory on me, and you lift my head. In the Old Testament, lifting the head is a picture of shame being taken away. And in this brief verse, as David is being betrayed and attacked by his own son, God is lifting his head to take his shame away. He's bestowing honor and glory. So he's not just lifting his head, but he's saying, you're honorable. Here's what's true about you. The lifting of the head is, it's not true that you are shameful. It is true that I'm honoring you. And then this shield is a sense that I'm secure in you and behind you and as you are around me. And so this core belief, I'm basically a bad or unworthy person, it can be so easy to embrace that and say, yep, that's the story of Scripture, but God loves me, and it's not that God loves you despite, it's that God loves you because he's God, and that the things that make us fall short of God's glory, that is sin, because of the cross, our guilt is taken away. And there, there is no shame, as Romans 10 tells us, and our shame is something that we renounce or that we break agreement with, and we do that at the cross as well. Second core belief, if the first is I'm a bad or unworthy person, don't measure up, not good enough, it's nobody would love me as I am. And if nobody would love me as I am, I've got to become somebody or something more than I am, or man, maybe I'm too much and I need to dial down. So we have to get big or we have to get small. And the problem with that core belief is that if the deepest longing of my heart is to be known and loved for who I really am as God made me, Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. If that deepest longing is to be loved for who I am, but I can't be who I am and I've got to be bigger or smaller, then I'm setting myself up for a compulsion or addiction where I've got to find something or someone, some behavior, some process to give me that sense that I am loved, that I am home, that I am okay, and this is why humility is the antidote, because if I trust you with me, then I can really be loved for who I am. If I trust God with who I am, really, then I can be loved for who I am. The third core belief that's shame-based is this idea that I can't get my needs met by depending on others. And this comes from our stories. This comes from our family of origin. And this leads us to a place of being self-sufficient of not being able to do vulnerability, not being able to open ourselves up. And we either become avoidant and disconnected or we become anxious and we try to control and cling to relationships in order to get our needs met. And those three core beliefs really lead to addiction, compulsion, and all kinds of dysfunctional patterns. Now, ultimately if all of these things are pieces of how we overcome shame, Brian, there's there's really one core component, and that is listen to the voice of love over and over and over again. I challenge people all the time, you know, well, I'm just an idiot, or I couldn't do that because I'm a failure, or I don't deserve that, or You know, I might get into graduate school, but I I really am not worthy of that particular program. And I'll just say, is that the voice of love speaking to you? Is that the voice of the Father of Jesus? The Father who, it says in John 15, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And here's what that means that God loves you as much as Jesus. And when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan, the, the the clouds parted and God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the shame thought, the shame core belief, the shame feeling, that flooding that comes over you, that you're exposed and you're, you're bad, unworthy, don't measure up, is that the voice of love? And I encourage people to challenge that And sometimes people will start to go, oh, my gosh, I've been living my whole life just believing this. And we can't stop those thoughts immediately. But there's a different narrative, a different story. And this voice of love is real and true. It's the truest thing about us because we are loved. And as we begin to identify these automatic shame beliefs and as we begin to listen to the voice of love, we can experience a kind of soothing and a kind of grounding and an inner sense of security that can eventually begin to untangle us and loosen us from the manacles of shame that really can become like a barrier over our soul that repels the living water of Jesus. And so... I'm a testimony to this. I write about it in my book. And when men or women who are struggling with sexual compulsion begin to really break free from shame, the power of the sexual temptation is incredibly diminished and people get free.
1: In addition to going to surfingforgod.com, restoringthesoul.com, and looking for the resources that are available, one of the greatest resources that we have is prayer. And I'd like to close uh, today's episode, uh, Michael, if you could pray for those that are experiencing uh, maybe a light uh, that has turned on, and they're experiencing uh, years of shame and their feelings, and I think that we have a great opportunity uh, to lift them up uh, to the Father that could start a, uh, a great healing journey for them today. Really grateful for you guys uh, listening and staying with us through these episodes of Surfing for God. There's a lot more great stuff to come, uh, but Michael, if you could uh, lead us in a prayer as we close out today's podcast, that'd be great.
0: You bet. I come before the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this beautiful triune God who we belong to this God who loves us from before the foundations of the world. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, Before I formed you, I knew you, and I set you apart. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, God says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And again, in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so, Jesus, you are the picture of what, God the Father is like. And I pray right now for the ones that are listening, that as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18, that you would open the eyes of men and women's hearts to see you seeing them. Open the eyes of their heart to see your gaze of delight and affection and love and joy. Open the eyes of their hearts to see you, Lord, with your kindness, with your compassion, with your gentleness, with your patience. Open their eyes, Lord, to see that you are rich in love, slow to anger, boundless in compassion, and that you, Jesus, the great physician, are the healer of broken hearts. I pray for anyone listening who, in their heart, in their mind, they have strongholds of shame, lies and beliefs that stand in the way of them knowing your love and your affection and your care. Lord, you are gracious and you are merciful. You provide all of our needs. I pray that where the evil one would come and accuse and shoot arrows at the hearts of men and women to make them believe that they're unforgivable, that the things they've done would make them not lovable, the things that they struggle with can never change. I pray for hope. I pray for light, I pray for healing, I pray for freedom, and whether it's a struggle with pornography and lust or other sexual sin, or whether it's a deep issue in our heart of being emotionally dependent or angry or depressed or struggling with self-hatred, I pray that your light would shine in the darkness and expose all of the lies. And I pray that your mercy would be like a balm and pour over every wound and tender, raw place in the heart. May you take your arms, Holy Trinity, and wrap them around the ones who need to hear the message of your love in Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that when we need to know what you are like and whether we can really trust you, that we look to the one Jesus who suffered, who died, who gave himself, who shed his blood for us, and who rose again to say that death and failure and struggle are not the end, but that you're always bringing new life and new creation. And may you do that to restore the hearts and the minds and the body, the soul of the men and women listening. And so to you, dear listener, dear friend, dear brother or sister in Christ, I hold up my hand, and with my hand open, I impart to you the shalom of Jesus, the peace of Christ, the well-being of God. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com That's RestoringTheSoul.com